I'll begin to read from verse 25. This is a very familiar passage, so we pray that the Lord would, would speak to us through his word. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more are you not of more value than they? And of which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lily of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the ocean, into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, or you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. What is it that ignites worry in your life? Is it the uncertainty of your job? Is it job loss? Or is it the eroded savings? Or as you think about your retirement and what will come next after that? Is it being single and not seeing marriage in the horizon? Is it the concern of your children, maybe their spiritual life, or how they'll turn out in life? Is it probably threatening uh, poor health? The words that ring out of this passage, do not worry, sound hollow, or may sound hollow, and perhaps removed from reality in your life. Is your life's response to all of this, Lord, there is much for me to worry about and to be anxious about. Uh, Don Carson, a theologian, gives the response of three different people to this passage. The first is called Laid Back Harry, or probably you'll call him Laid Back Harry. He was always late for meetings, very unreliable. He never gets around to doing what he will do. And he does not take life seriously, nor his faith seriously. The second was Freightful Frida. She takes everything very seriously. She overthinks everything. And the decisions she's about to make have to be rethought over every time. She worries that when she has made the decisions, she has made the wrong decisions. She worries about what will happen that 
may never happen. The third was hurting Henry. Hurting Henry is uh, rather older. He's a mature Christian. He just found out that his wife is dying of an inoperable brain tumor. He worries that she'll soon degenerate into a vegetative state. All these three hear these same words, and these are their responses. Larry feels vindicated. Yes, everyone should just chill like me. Frida starts to worry that she has been worrying all along and that she continues to worry. Henry um, is annoyed and thinks, how on earth should I be told not to worry when I have this burden on my shoulders? Worry, friends, is not the enemy. Worry, in one sense, is not only good, its absence is irresponsible. And so there's a sense with which worry is something that is important and good for us. But in this passage today, worry is seen as that which signifies unbelief and disobedience to God. The word worry then, or being anxious as is seen in this passage, should be seen from the point of view of what are we really worrying about? Or why are we worrying? That's the more important question. Being anxious sometimes is seen in a very positive sense. I'll just refer to three quick passages where we see this. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 28, Paul sends back Epaphroditus to the church at Philippi. And this is what he says. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. Or he says again in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 28, as regards his whole life, um, he says, I have been anxious about the churches. In fact, just to quote the words directly, he says, and apart from all other things, there is daily the pressure on me for my anxiety for all the churches. Paul also expresses the undivided attention to the Lord in terms of anxiety. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 32. I want you to be free from anxiety. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. So we see that anxiety is not the enemy. It is really what we are anxious about or why we are anxious that reveals to us what's going on in the heart. What is it that we actually are treasuring? It is, the things, is it the things of this world, or is it the things of the Lord? The passage before us, Matthew chapter 6, is um, a passage that's really right in the middle of Jesus' teaching. He is uh, before a great crowd, and um, he sits down, or rather stands up on a hill, and preaches to this crowd. And this, this, this message is actually called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is speaking to very um, lowly people in society, to the farmers, the fishermen, uh, to those who sell in the marketplace, uh, people for whose subsistence was the daily, uh, their daily uh, uh, income that they were getting uh, to meet their daily needs. This is a group of people that Jesus is speaking to. But stepping back in the whole book of Matthew, we see that 
Jesus reveals himself in this book as the Messiah, as the anointed king in the line of David. He comes to save his people and to be king over his people. And here in this particular passage, he's not only savior, but he comes to teach them how to live their, king, their kingdom lives in a fallen world. And so here he refers to an aspect of their lives and says, do not worry. The word worry or being anxious is, according to the dictionary, a feeling of unease or apprehension or a dread of what is to come. Anxiety is superimposing the future on the present. It is our preoccupation with what will happen. In anxiety, we exhibit a lack of faith. And so we see in verse 25, he says, therefore. Therefore um, means that there is something that is preceding this passage that's important for us to note. In the passage just above it, he has been talking about the treasures, what it is that you treasure um, in verse 19. And then in verse um, 24, he says, no one can serve two masters. For either you will serve, you will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. He ends the previous section with this radical statement. You cannot serve two masters. You either serve God or you serve money. And then he says, therefore. And so he transitions into this section and says, do not be anxious about life. What he's trying to say is that worry is symptomatic about the master that you serve. Worry will show you what you live for, what you treasure. It's important as we come to this passage to understand that he does not mean we should not be responsible. He doesn't mean that we should live irresponsible lives. Or he doesn't mean that we should not work. We see in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not according to the tradition that you have received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. So this is not a license to being idle. This passage is also not a formula for the uh, famous prosperity teaching. Just do this and you'll get this in turn. It is not a formula for prosperity teaching. Do not be anxious about your life, the Lord Jesus Christ says here. He is not actually just putting out a cliche, you know, or, or just giving a pep talk about self-esteem. That is not what the Lord is here doing. The Lord here, as we see, speaks to his disciples. He drew his disciples together and he warns them about having that disquieted, that distracted, that distrusting heart, that corrosive anger that debilitates us, that causes us to just do nothing. As we look at this passage, you look at it under two headings. The first is anxiety exposed. And here we see the Lord Jesus Christ giving several reasons why we should not be anxious, that the Lord is gracious and cares for his people. And secondly, we'll look at the remedy to anxiety. So from 25 to 32, we'll be looking at um, anxiety exposed. And then from verse 
um, 33 to 34, we'll be looking at the remedy to anxiety. In exposing anxiety here, the Lord Jesus Christ uses rhetoric questions. Now, we are all very familiar with such type of questions. From the time that we're young, our parents would issue questions that you dare not respond to. You know that when you do, that will be even worse for you. And so rhetoric questions are meant to be questions that you know the answer is obvious. And that's how the Lord Jesus Christ is teaching here. But just doesn't use rhetoric questions. Each one of those reasons is steeply dipped in the fact that it is God who is doing. It is God who is caring for his people. It is God who is at the center of what uh, of, 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 of undertaking for his people. So we'll look at verse 25 to 26, which is God cares for his people. Verse 27, God is sovereign. And then verse 28 to 30, God is able. And finally, God knows. Verse 25, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you will drink. Know about what your body, what you will put on. He's really saying there, God cares for us. And God cares in two ways. Firstly, by giving us life. Jesus is saying, uh, do not be anxious about your life. God is here speaking to his disciples and he's saying to them, your life in me comes from God. Knowing where life comes from, knowing where spiritual life comes from, is important for each one of us. We trust him for our salvation. This same God is a God that we should trust for our sustenance. He says, do you not know? Whoever believes in me has eternal life. And this eternal life is knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, whom God sent and whom God has given to us. This is life. So when he says here, um, do not be anxious about your life. He's speaking to his disciples and he's saying, your life is entrusted to me. And for those of you who are here probably visiting us or probably have been attending for a time and you hear a sermon about worrying, you're thinking, yes, that is like me. Well, listen along because here is a solution for, for those of you who do not know Christ. It is as you come to know this life, this life that, is come, that comes through Christ, this which is eternal life. It's a life that comes from firstly acknowledging your sin, knowing your true need, that you are in need of a savior, knowing that it is Jesus Christ alone who can give you life, knowing that Christ died, that you might have your sins forgiven and life in him. It is knowing that Christ accomplished all on the cross and that all you need to do is to turn from sin, turn from self, and trust in him. He says here, um, do not be anxious about your life. It's about entrusting ourselves wholly to him, wholly to the Lord Jesus Christ. Here, Jesus does not minimize food and clothing, but he's really saying, God gives all. Jesus is here saying, life is more important than food and clothing, and it comes from him. He's saying there is an important dimension to life. Uh, to the world. It is not just about food and clothing. It's about sin. It's about judgment. It's about the forgiveness of sin. It's about heaven itself. 
And when he says here, um, do not be anxious about your life, he's saying all of this comes freely from, from God. If God gives us a life, so Jesus is here arguing from the greater to the lesser, how much more food and clothing? This is the first part. The second, he says, God cares about our daily supplies, verse 16. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Pasembewe is one who has an affinity to birds, to gazing, to looking at the birds. And we see sometimes pictures of this. Well, the Bible says birds are of very little value. Matthew chapter 10 says two sparrows are sold for a penny, meaning for one coin you can't get one, but you get the value of two birds. And so they are of little value. But he says they do not work. They don't sow. They don't reap. And they don't gather into, into barns. They don't stockpile. They don't trust in their reserves for their future. Remember the rich fool in Luke chapter 12? who had stored up in his barns, thinking all would be well for the future. And God says, you fool. This passage reminds us that God cares for our daily needs, that God feeds the birds of the air. And so here again, Jesus argues from a lesser to a greater. If birds which are of less value are cared for, how much more you? Now, the word value here should be one where we should just pause and think. Remember in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, God made man in his own image. And he not only made him in his own image, he gave him dominion over all things. That is the value of man. Man is of titanic significance to God. He is at the apex of God's creation. So when he says here, you are more valuable than them, He's really saying there is no comparison with the birds. But our value just doesn't end there as God's children. Christ has purchased us with his own blood. We are precious to him. Our relationship with, to him is one that is dear. Romans 8 verse 32, he says, He did not spare his only son. God bankrupted heaven in order that you would be restored to him. And so you are precious, he's saying. And this obviously should cause us, as a, as a first reason, to think, well, why then should I worry? God cares for me. But I think there's one word that we ought to note there in verse 26. He calls God our heavenly Father. This ought to be the default for all of us as believers I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about God. You think about Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. You think about the eternal one. You think about God who is the creator. But I think the instinctive thought for a child of God should be my heavenly father. And you see there in verse 26, he talks about your heavenly father uh, knows your needs. And that is our relationship with God. And this should cause us to rest in the fact that God cares for us. So God cares by giving us life, by supplying our needs. Second, God is sovereign. Look at verse 27. He says, And which of you, 
by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life. Um, the actual rendering in the Greek is unclear whether it is a life, it's an extension of life, or even height. Which of you could add a cubic to your, to your height, uh, even if you care to do that, or expand to your life? We are not designed to be in control. God is in control. We cannot extend the boundaries that God has decreed. Anxiety will not add to your life. In fact, it simply reduces on it. It reduces on the quality of your life. It causes you to have uh, disrupted sleep. You wake up in the night and are mulling over the things that you're worrying about. It raises your blood pressure for, for, for some of us. Uh, or for some, it causes mental health. Mental health is a big thing globally, and I think so even here in Zambia. And this is because partly of worry. And so it, it reduces the quality of your life. For some, it's linked to stomach ulcers. Uh, for some, it's just a change in lifestyle. You find that they are taken to the bottle, as they call it here in Zambia. They're, they're taken to drink, to excessive alcohol. Or maybe it's excessive amounts of time watching TV or on, on social media uh, or anything that just numbs out your sense of worry. Well, worry can actually reduce your quality of life. We must be reminded that God is sovereign. God has not only decreed the span of your life, he is also able. He does not only have authority as the one who is sovereign, but he has power to do. Let's see this in verse 28. He says, Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you or you of little faith. Lilies do not spin. Lilies do not labor. He's not here describing the fact that they are working in order to maintain their life. He's actually talking about the sense of striving, the sense of um, being driven in their lives. That's what he's trying to describe here. They, they're not labor. They don't spin. They don't labor, um, as it were. Uh, and, and so there is no attempt in them to do anything that is driven, as we often are. Now, for most of us in life, and particularly I think I've, I've, I've noticed being around for the last couple of weeks, is just our desire to not be where we are, but to move on. And this could be, uh, in one sense, in, in what we acquire, the things that we want to add on in order to be comfortable. Um, there is one um, rich billionaire um, in the last century in the United States called um, John D. Rockefeller. He was one of the wealthy, wealthiest businessmen and philanthropists in the United States. And once he was asked by a journalist, how much is enough? And his response was, just a little bit more. This idea of, I just need to acquire something more. And you cause yourself sleepless nights and you worry about the sense of acquisition. If only I had a house. If only I had more money. If only I had that. And that just eats you up. 
or sometimes it's not a sense of acquisition, it's a sense of achieving. If only I have just one more credential to my CV, that will make me well. The things that we want to be or the things that we want to have, the sense of acquisition or achievement being things that we think will give us meaning to life. Well, this passage, he says there, Solomon, the monarch of Solomon, he says, could not compare to the lilies of the valley. All that Solomon was in his kingdom cannot compare to the way God clothes the lilies of the valley. We are all tempted to seek meaning in things outside us, in things outside God. But God says here, he clothes the lilies of the valley. What he's also trying to say here is that our problem is not an economic problem. If only I can solve my educational problem, if only I can solve my social problem. Look at the page again in verse um, 28, is it? He says, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much you, how mu will he not, sorry, will he not much more clothe you, or you of little faith? The problem is our faith, our lack of faith. That's what he's describing here. The problem is that we cannot grasp the God who cares the God who is sovereign, the God who is able, and finally, the God who knows. We see there in verse 31, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. We see that this verse is more of a rebuke, because he's saying, look, you worry just like the Gentiles. The Gentiles seek after these things. And he ends there with the fact that the Father knows. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your circumstances. He knows your hopes. He knows your fears. He knows your longings. He knows your desires. He knows those things that weigh you down uh, through the hours of the night. The Father, in fact, he uses again here, your heavenly Father knows these things. We often um, would think, if only I know what's about to come, well, I might be better prepared for it. Well, I think a better way to put that is, though we cannot see what is around the corner, God knows. And he's a God whom we can trust. How much better is that? How much more reassuring is that to us as God's children? Having given them reasons here why they should not worry, and really all of them are God-centered, not the economics, not your education, not dependent on things around, but dependent on God, Jesus then gives us a solution to uh, to, to anxiety. And we see this in verse 33 and verse 34. But seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow 
for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. We see this divided into two parts. Both of them are a plea for godliness. Seek first the kingdom of God. That faith really is the cure for our freighting or for our being anxious. Our soul, our, our eyes are often, our sight is often myopic to the things that we can see, to the way things seem to be, but faith gives us the reality of the way things truly are. So we see in verse 33 a focus firstly on God's kingdom and in verse 34 a focus on today. He says there, do not be anxious. Um, he says, but, but seek first the kingdom of God. He's saying, firstly, your highest priority should be to seek God's kingdom, should be to seek God and God alone, that he should be central in your life, in the way that you live, in the way that you plan out things. God should be central in our lives. Think for a moment. When you think about the kingdom of God, where on earth do we see the kingdom of God visibly displayed? Where do we see a glimpse of the kingdom of God on earth? It is the church. It is here where you see God's rule and God's reign amongst God's children, amongst those who come to know Christ in conversion and they begin to live the Christian life. When he says, when he says here, seek the kingdom of God, as, as a child of God, he's really calling us to press into the church, to be here both morning and evening, to be a people that love the people of God and what's happening in the lives of God's children, to be those that are attentive to the preaching of God's word and to discuss the preaching of God's word after this, to be a people that are concerned about one another and are tracking one another in discipling relationships. And so when he says here, seek first the kingdom of God, I think it starts firstly in the way that we visibly see it in the church um, as, 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 as we are committed to the local church, as we join in the local church, as we are regular in attendance in the church here. But he's also saying seek the kingdom of God in contrast to uh, verse 31. Remember the Gentiles? They go after these things. Then he begins verse uh, 31 with um, you know to ask Christians but, sorry verse 3 but, that but is in contrast to the Gentiles, he says but for you seek first the kingdom of God, in contrast to the world, your desire would, should be the extension of the kingdom of God the advance of the gospel the growth of believers, the growth in righteousness and sometimes you think well that sounds like a very big demand on me well, I don't think it is such a high demand on you. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ, who, are, who is our example par excellence, how he left the glories of heaven, and his one goal was the salvation of souls. The Bible says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but gave up all and became like us. He humbled himself even to the point of death, death on the cross. He had that single-mindedness, your salvation. Is it too much for you to have him first, to have his glory first, to have his kingdom as your first desire, 
as your first delight? That is what he's saying here. Seek first the kingdom of God. He came to serve, not to be saved. He gave his life as a ransom for many. And as we'll be later remembering this in the Lord's Supper, as we uh, have communion together, we should be reminded that Christ made us his highest priority, even to death. And so he's not demanding nothing from us that he himself has not shown or done in giving up himself for us. And so we owe him our complete dedication. Seek first the kingdom of God is not a formula statement. When I seek God's kingdom, then I get my riches. That's how the prosperity teaching would put it, which is, this is my breakthrough theology. Once I hold on to this statement, I seek God's kingdom, I get all the prosperity and all the health and the wealth that goes with it. That is not what he's saying. To put in the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says, um, let us speak the gospel to ourselves. Let us remind ourselves of what Christ has done. And let us remind ourselves, even this evening as we commune together, of the riches that Christ has purchased for us. And let this dispel worry. This is what takes away worry. Second, he says, focus on today. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Jesus is saying, today has sufficient trouble for itself. Worrying about tomorrow will not change tomorrow. But also, he's saying to us, God has given us sufficient labors, and our focus should be on what we need today to do today. What will we do if we know that Christ is coming tomorrow? Think through. What will you do? Well, one theologian has said, I'll pay my taxes, I'll go to work, I'll be faithful in my day today. That is how we as believers should, should live. If you are a, a, a mom who lives at home, who is mostly at home and works at home and is busy with your chores and you think these are mundane, well, the Lord is here saying, focus on what the Lord has called you to do today. Whatever that task is, do it with delight, do it with joy. Do not be debilitated by the worries of tomorrow. We should not be predisposed um, as others are to, to, to thinking about tomorrow. Or oh, there are some of you who would just um, have this stoic thing, which is, I just don't worry. Maybe it's a temperament. You just don't, you know, feed yourself with anxiety. Well, that's not the biblical form here of do not be anxious. One who is not anxious, the Bible says, seeks the kingdom of God. And so if you're just stoic, you know, you are one who just is not a warrior, you don't worry, you don't get anxious, that's not what the Bible is describing here. It's one that seeks after the kingdom of God, that delights in the kingdom of God, that saturates themselves with the things that are to come. In closing, let me just get back to our three friends, to laid-back Larry, to Freightful Frida, and to Hurting Henry. This passage would cause laid-back Larry to, to be careless about life and to just think, well, don't worry, I should just be happy, I can carelessly get on with my immaturity. Well, that's not what the Bible is saying here. The Bible is saying that he should be concerned about the things that God has given him to do today. 
to not be concerned, to not be anxious for God's kingdom and for his glory is to show immaturity as a child of God. To fret for Frida, uh, the reminder here is that God cares for his people and that we are precious, more precious than the birds of the air. Now remember earlier I gave five different reasons why we should not worry. Now, we all probably don't use those five different reasons. There is one of those reasons that for you is a precious gem. Each time that worry comes, you go to that one and you go back to it. It could be that God cares or God knows or that God is sovereign or that God is able. But you go to just that one and just pick up that gem and again use it uh, to, to, to soothe yourselves and to, to remind yourself of God's care. Hurting Henry... He needs to hear this message as well, that worrying is not an enemy. It's okay to be concerned about his ailing wife. It's okay to be concerned about those concerns that God has put before you. But then we should not cross over to be anxious. We should not cross over to take over God's role. We should not cross over to a lack of faith. We should not cross over to live that debilitating life that just lives living for tomorrow. Live fruitfully, live in today, and live for God's glory. As we are coming before the Lord's Supper this evening, let us be reminded of what Christ has done for us. And let, us, let this spur us on to seek first the kingdom of God. If he prioritized us, I think we have an obligation. We have a demand, friends. To prioritize him. If you're here as an unchristian and worry is very much a part of your life, I want to assure you that on this side, for those of us who are Christians, we know a peace that surpasses all understanding. We know a contentment that comes from God. And you can only know this by turning away from your sin, by identifying yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ, forsaking self and putting Christ as Lord in your life by turning from your sin and trusting only in him. The only fitness he requires is for you to feel your need of him. Let us just pray together. Our Father, we thank you for such a great salvation. We thank you for how it frees us from worry. It frees us from idolatry of putting other things central in our life. We thank you for this great salvation which causes us to know a peace with you. This salvation that causes us to trust in you completely and to know a contentment that comes from above. And yet, O oh Lord, we want to confess our sins, how we so often grapple with that which, Lord, is in your hands, how we often are filled with anxiety. Lord, forgive us for a lack of faith. Forgive us for not trusting in your character, in your faithfulness. May we as a people know that experiential faithfulness and character of God in our lives daily. We pray that we would live such different lives that the world out there would be drawn to know Christ as Savior. We thank you for the gift of the Lord's Supper a reminder of what Christ has done for us, and that we, O oh Lord, may not be a people who worry, but a people whose joy and delight 
even in difficult circumstances, is to walk in the joy of knowing you and knowing that you are with us. Be pleased to bless your people here. Cause them, O oh Lord, to grow in gospel fruitfulness. Cause this church to continue to grow in maturity in Christ. We pray, O oh Lord, these things in Christ's name. Amen.